Now, um, we're into our 48th episode of SAMA. We're very delighted to have Dr. Michelle Perot as our guest expert in this week's episode. Um, Michelle is a medical doctor. She's a veteran pediatrician with over 35 years of experience in acute and integrative medicine. More than 10 years ago, uh, Michelle transformed her clinical practice to include pesticide and health advocacy. She has both directed and worked as attending physician from New York's Metropolitan Hospital to UCSF, uh, Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland. She's managed her own business, down-to-earth pediatrics. Uh, she is currently lecturing and consulting, as well as working with Gordon Medical Associates, an integrative health centre in Northern California. So welcome to our show, Michelle. It's lovely to have you with us. John, my pleasure, and glad to be here. Thank you. Um, so please tell us, what is making our children sick? Well, um, you think after four decades of doing this, I would probably finally get it right, correct? Uh, I've been looking at this issue uh, intensely for the past 15 years because I saw this in tremendous decline in our children's health. And it was a global decline, not just one health issue, but many issues affecting respiratory system, gut, neurocognitive, their neurologic systems, behavior, sleep, um, their psychology, etc. And I, and I got involved with a group of gals that were working with pesticides here where I live in Northern California. And through my relationship with this tenacious, sassy group of women, and they, they, they're my mentors and my heroes, um, I was asked about GMOs. And frankly, this was in 2006, and I really didn't have an idea about GMOs and their associated pesticides. I was a total newbie. I knew nothing. And I read what they recommended I read, a book by Jeffrey Smith called Seeds of Deception, which turned me around, light bulbs popping off and um, lots of information coming my way. And I finally put some dots together and began linking what I was seeing in kids, chronic illness, and the effect of our modern industrial altered food with that's been genetically modified and their associated pesticides on our children's health. Long yes. Sorry, that's a long answer. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, it was actually last night I was listening to um, Kat Stevens' Where Do the Children Play? And, it's, and it really struck me, like, I, I was, you know, we've got the summer the day after, you know, the summer was coming the day after. And the focus is really on, um, on everything but the children now, which just seems wrong. The song, of course, is talking about uh, progress and, um, you know, buildings being made taller and roads being made longer and going on forever, but where do the children play? And now we're talking about a health issue where, um, you know, children's health is coming secondary to progress, you know, to genetically modified foods, um, all the modern foods that come out. Um, when you talk about pesticides, um, what does that term include? Uh, you're talking about pesticides use. So um, I, I really honed in on glyphosate, which is the active ingredient yes. in Roundup, because we, mod we, we introduced in 1996 crops, herbicide-tolerant crops called Roundup-ready crops, that when they were sprayed, they could withstand the spraying, they didn't die, and so these were Roundup-ready crops that were meant to be sprayed 
with Roundup and other glyphosate um, uh, uh, herbs, uh, I mean, uh, pesticides, there are 730 formulations now worldwide. Good there gracious. are pesticides that are being used in crops, in people's gardens, at schools, something I'm working on here at home, such as organophosphates and various fungicides, etc. But I really um, honed in on the most commonly used herbicide, which is Roundup. Right, right. Gosh, it's terrible. And that could explain why the children today seem to be more sick than previous generations. <laughs> you just can't, it's so hard to work around um, Roundup and other, other, um, other toxins which are spread over our crops. It's, um, it's ubiquitous. And this glyphosate, um, it's, it's a sneaky little molecule. It gets into everything. It's tenacious. It gets into water. It gets in the air. It's in our food. You track it in the house dust when kids come in from playing. So children and us and our animal friends and our livestock are exposed literally at every turn, every angle. Wow. So are there steps that you can take to, um, to remove the toxins from your body? Or what is your approach? What, what do you do for children that come to see you who are sick? Yeah, there, so just to kind of, you know, uh, you know, hone it down for our audience here. So yeah. I insist that people eat organic food or as organic as they can. I understand all the challenges to getting organic food, whether it's access, cost, whether it's just not available. Um, so that's my first thing. And to avoid processed foods, whole, you know, farm to table, everyone back in the kitchen, here in the States, nobody wants to cook, everybody wants to do takeout. Takeout is no good. Um, so we have to really start getting cooking again when making real food. So as organic as they can. If they say they can't do organic for any reason, I ask my families to avoid GMOs. And if they avoid certain crops, they will avoid GMOs. And just, okay. just rinse off the pesticides from other crops. I start. So there are some crops that, are, uh, that they almost exclusively use pesticides? So here um, we have there, the crops in America that are almost completely genetic, genetically modified are soy, corn, canola, cotton, alfalfa fed to livestock, and many. Gosh. And and we're seeing more and more. We have Hawaiian papayas that are modified. Um, sugar from sugar beets is extensively modified. So it becomes like you almost need a PhD in food preparation to kind of navigate a supermarket. But, you know, we always avoid corn, soy, and sugar from sugar beets. And if people just stick to fruits, veggies, a little bit of meat or fish if they're vegetarian or, you know, other proteins, rice and beans, etc., they can avoid a lot of the pesticides. If you buy lettuce, for example, that has been sprayed, at least you can wash it off. Lettuce, so far, is not genetically modified. So there are certain vegetables and fruits we can still wash it off. But, for example, if you buy genetically modified corn, you cannot wash off the pesticide. Every kernel of corn has become a pesticide, so it cannot be washed off. So people need to understand these differences. Okay, so they've actually put the pesticide into the, into the corn itself. They've, they've actually put it in, inside, inside the, um, the cells, if you like, of the, of the corn. 
So this is such an interesting process. There are different techniques for genetic modification. And one mm. is in insertion of a gene that codes for herbicide tolerance. And they use a gene gun to insert this, this new uh, coding. And they have to do all sorts of things to get the plant to uptake this new genetic sequence. Okay. The other thing that they do is it's something called BT, where they take um, a soil bacterium, Bacillus thuringiensis, which naturally produces an herbicide, this bacterium. They take that gene and they've inserted into the corn and um, so that when pests, various insects, corn borer, etc., eat that corn that now has this gene from the bacillus organism, the actual insect's tummies burst open. And that's what happens. We were told that when we eat that corn, we wouldn't have these issues because the acidic environment of our stomachs would break down the BT. Now, that's not been shown to be true because they have found this circulating BT um, in, for example, fetal blood, maternal blood, and so it's not so clear if it's broken down. And many individuals, particularly here in the US, don't have acidic guts anymore, particularly their stomach, because they're all on acid blockers, such as Tums, Prilosec, et cetera, because everyone's got reflux and all these gut issues here. So that's not quite true. And so um, there are different modification processes. And now what people really need to be aware of, there's a new couple of years old gene editing process um, called CRISPR. And um, the, uh, the organizations, the businesses that are trying to promote this new techno technology of gene editing are trying very hard not to get it labeled as a genetic modification, which it is, and so that it bypasses any regulation. And you edit out a gene, an undesirable gene, browning of apples, for example. But once you edit out that gene, you can't put it back, it's permanently removed. And what's not been studied is you've now changed the sequencing of that organism, the genetic sequencing, and untoward effects down the road have not been, mm. such as the production of proteins which shouldn't be produced, rogue proteins, which our bodies can't recognize and can be the reaction to, such as an allergy. So this, and it's not, these health issues are not being addressed, John. We're all part of a large experiment then. We're, we're part, isn't that awful? We, wow. We are a big, we have a 20 year scientific experiment that has taken place among our children, our livestock, our, our, our cats and our dogs, ourselves, because we've been eating it since 1996. And now we're seeing the downside. Our children are the experiment. Everyone's that part of the large experiment. So what, what can we do? We, we buy organic foods. We wash product as best we can. Um, if, if your child has got glyphosate in their body, um, can we take steps to remove that? Yes, we can. So, um, so many children now have gut inflammation, things called leaky gut. Um, mm. permeability and an abnormal microbiome, which are the beneficial germs in your gut, which really are considered an organ now. They're crucial for health. And glyphosate, which has been patented as an antibiotic by Monsanto, disrupts that microbiome. We only have that data from animal studies, and we're starting to look at that in humans, literally, as we speak.
So what parents can do, well, again, we talked about removing the source, right? Remove the glyphosate. But in addition, they can help heal their children's gut through various ways. One would be by improving the microbiome. And that could be either taking probiotics or, or and or eating increased amounts of fermented foods. And people can make fermented foods at home. It's not that difficult. I mean, I'm no Martha Stewart, but I did it at home myself. It's not so tough. So that's one thing parents can do. They also can give their children various herbs and plants in like a smoothie, such as dandelion. I say don't spray the dandelion, eat it. And there are other herbs that are detoxifying, like cilantro and parsley. And these are things we can get here in the U.S. Um, and so to increase those things in children's diets. And then what we need to do is if, if, if a child really is having issues, whether it's autistic spectrum disorder or autoimmune diseases, and I'm not trying to have one size fits all, it isn't, it's, medicine's very individualized. They can consider taking their child off gluten and dairy because those are really inflammatory foods until the gut gets better. These are beginning. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, food sensitivity tests, is there any controversy with those? Massive. Um, yes, lots of controversy. Um, and the controversy is really with Western practitioners. They don't wrap around this idea that you can have low-grade chronic inflammation. They consider yes. only the most severe reaction um, that you get mounted to, let's say, a peanut sensitivity. Your immune system mounts a response and it's called IgE, immunoglobulin E a very reactive one. Those are the ones where the kid has anaphylaxis, they can't breathe, they swell up, it's not a good one. But there are low-grade inflammatory reactions that can occur with other um, immune uh, antibodies such as IgG and IgA. Now, as an integrative practitioner, we know that these other immune uh, antibodies are significant, even though they're low-grade. And many Western practitioners don't believe it. They say those are normal, and this is where we disagree. Um, I have seen children with massive high levels of all these markers, the IgG and IgA. We heal their gut. We make changes to their diet. I offer various uh, different tools for my toolbox, my integrative toolbox, and those markers go down significantly and or go away. And they feel better. What a thought. Clinical evidence. <laughs> Well, why, if, if you're getting success, why is it being opposed? Why, why isn't it being sort of, you know, taken up with other, by other um, researchers and uh, health professionals? Well, um, you'd have to be willing to ask the question whether our model of medicine is serving our new blossoming, blossomed group of ill children. And the present model of medicine, pill for ill medicine, where we treat symptomatology and we give a drug based on a symptom, it does not work for chronic disorders. Maybe for an acute issue, if you're having an, a heart attack and you take a, a, a nitro paste or something, sure. But these chronic disorders, this pill for ill medicine doesn't work. So this pharmaceutical, pharmacology-based um, prescription is faulty when it comes to treating chronic disorders, whether it's uh, autism or autoimmunity, Crohn's disease, um, uh, multiple sclerosis, et cetera. So we are, and here is Western, Western um, uh, medicine does not work. In the world of integrative medicine, or we also call it functional medicine, there are many tools that do work, herbs, 
homeopathics, various supplements, uh, dietary um, food-focused medicine, dietary manipulations, and focusing on foods that will improve health, whatever that prescription might be, do work. But they're not profit-making. You don't make a lot of profit by recommending parsley and cilantro. Now, you've been driven in your research to write a book. Can you tell us a bit about your book, please, and um, what sort of things you've included in the book? The book is entitled, What's Making Our Children Sick? How Industrial Food Has Caused an Epidemic um, in, chronic, uh, in Chronically Ill Children and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. And I co-wrote it with a wonderful, uh, brilliant, my neighbor, if you can believe that, Dr. Vince Ann Adams. And she's a medical anthropologist at UCSF. And Vincent and I, we live next door to each other, taking a hike. I learned what she was doing. She learned what I was doing. And we thought, oh my gosh, serendipity with the marriage of a clinical viewpoint, my myopic viewpoint, just on children, and her broader palette, her big public view. So we went and we interviewed about 20 of my patients, and we wrote about 10 of them in the book. So when we first began working on this project together, Vincent was skeptical, and she says this herself. She didn't believe any of these things I was telling her, and she said, well, if GMOs are so bad and we have this food crisis, why, why aren't my doctors telling me this? I don't hear this from my people. Or her institution, UCSF. They actually thought she was crazy to get into this project. As she starts talking to all my patients who are <laughs> and seeing the lab data and the clinical improvements, she finally got it. And also, she was doing her own you know, research and reading mm. she read tons so we what we wrote this book to really help people connect the dots beginning and this book was written for people who are naysayers who say what gmos pesticides causing all these issues no way and many mm. of these folks are scientists doctors and that's the audience we were really going for the naysayers and so we put all these pieces together start from the beginning go through the gut based on all my patients, ending with the concept of eco-medicine, where we need to change the model of how we practice, particularly here in the U.S., which is Western medicine. Gosh. So when you're, having, when you're consuming modern food, you're really consuming created chemicals. Who, who regulates the food system? And are there any blind spots within this regulation? Well, I'll give you a polite answer, John. Um, we have three organizations here in the U.S. that are, in theory, regulating our food. We have, uh, well, it, regulating these processes, we have the EPA, the FDA, and the USDA. That's here in the U.S. But unfortunately, um, industry has been allowed to conduct their own studies, and they basically got a seal of approval without any of the government agencies doing the work looking at the safety of these products. And they got the seal of approval that these uh, foods, let's say GMO foods, are gross, generally recognized as safe. So we basically had the fox guarding the hen house. The agencies, when they first were asked to look at their stuff in the 80s, reported that they were concerned. Like in the 1980s, the EPA gave pushback against a glyphosate, for example, because it showed kidney tumors in rats. And agribusiness was able, through very deep pockets, to work around it, get their people in wherever they needed to, and get things pushed through. So we unfortunately have somewhat of a very um, 
oh, cozy relationship between agribusiness and our government. And I'd have to say nobody is really watching out for children or any of us. For the people watching this video now, they might, some of them may be thinking, well, this is not, no, you're obviously anti-GM, you know, and it hasn't been proven that it's causing illnesses. What would you say to people like this to, um, you know, make them open their eyes? So what I would say is something that I had to go through, John, is whether I said, when I first started, I said, really, genetically modified food are causing all these issues. So I went to the science. I said, let's go to the science. I didn't believe it myself. I'm a New Yorker. So I looked at the studies and the first study I looked at was the work of Dr. Arpad Pusti. And he was a researcher in the UK at the Rowett Institute. And he was the first scientist to look at genetically modified food. And he thought they would be fine. And he did a beautiful study of rats eating genetically modified potatoes and not, and I'll, I'll get to the quick here for the sake of time, is that the rats who ate the genetically modified potatoes had significant changes in their guts, immune systems, and organs. He was shocked by the findings. So when he announced his findings for a few days, I believe two, he was a hero in the UK worldwide. But then some people here in the US called uh, Bill, and Bill called Tony, and Tony called the Road Institute, and Dr. Pusey was fired, and he, he was thrown out of his institution, um, went on to have a heart attack, I believe, and later told his story with another scientist called Scientist Under Attack. So if you fast forward from Arpad's work to Michael Antonio's work, uh, essentially 20 years later, and Michael Antonio is a brilliant researcher and a friend and a colleague at um, King's College in London, head of gene expression and gene therapy. And he did a study looking at this specifically, the GM process on rats. And he found significant differences in the genetically modified uh, livers of a chow fed to rats and their livers and those not. And he found evidence of oxidative stress and increased uh, substances called polyamines and reduced glutathione and I, all this kind of stuff. And so I began to understand through work of theirs, Dr. Seralini, Dr. Judy Carman, Howard Vlieger, that GM food and non-GM food are not equivalent. And the GM food had significant effects on animals, research animals. There are no human studies on the effect of GM food on humans. If a, if a food is genetically modified, as it passes through their gut, their gut would break it down, the acids in the gut. Um, so why would it matter if some of the um, some of the DNA is being altered, if it's all broken down? So it it likely is not getting all broken down. That this okay. so these this new sequencing, um, if when we're eating it, um, and it's and we ought, and we do eat the genetically modified food with associated pesticide. You don't need a GM by itself. And so it has a significant amount of glyphosate on it. So what I suspect is happening is that the glyphosate is causing a disruption in the microbiome layer of the intestinal lining, causing um, erosion of the mucus layer and the protection and causing dysbiosis at the intestinal uh, lining. And it's causing and creating something called leaky gut.
So this and this GM process, these genetically modified foods, which are different proteins, are crossing this leaky gut, getting into our bloodstream, and our immune system is recognizing these proteins as foreign invaders. And so it's mounting an immune response. After the introduction of genetically modified food in London, in England actually, the rate of soy allergies skyrocketed because we are, now, we are now getting these new foods, these new sequences in our body and we're not recognizing them as we should. We have not evolved with these new proteins. And so in addition, so we know the genetic modified, modified process is causing these different effects. It's also causing um, oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is interesting. It's almost like a rusting process that's happening in, in our bodies. And oxidative mm. stress is a precursor to cancer down the road. Now, cancer takes a long time to develop, can take decades. But we do know, right, is that it can be happening from the GM process from ca causing this oxidative stress. And we also know that glyphosate was labeled a class 2A probable carcinogen by the World Health or Organization in March of 2015. It was labeled a carcinogen in laboratory animals, but because we didn't have human studies, it was a class 2A or probable carcinogen. So now we have these two compounds together, and as some researchers have shown, that the GM process with glyphosate and with the inert substances that you find, for example, in Roundup, are indeed the most toxic. And that was shown by the work of Dr. Serralini in France. So we have, we have data, we have rat data. When I look at children, I was seeing the same effects as reported by these researchers in children, both clinically, by their history, their physical exams, and laboratory data. And then when you made the changes, they not only got better, their laboratory data improved as well. Gosh, it's perhaps because the illnesses that genetically modified foods create are so slow to develop that there's not a direct link to these, um, to the you know plague of the food and old altering of the genetic sequences. Maybe maybe that's how it got sneaked in because I mean if it, if it takes decades for the cancer to develop. As a result of that's how it happened, John. That it, yes, that it takes a long time to develop, but also no one's looking to see if it's the effect of the GM process. How do we do that evaluative process? And if Western docs aren't even putting these pieces together, they're not going to be looking for this. Also, let's say you eat the GM food, the genetically modified uh, soy, and then three days later you have tummy bloating, constipation, mm. reflux of your food coming up. Many people are not recognizing what they ate three days ago with their present symptoms. Very hard to correlate. And if you're not thinking this way, and if you're not trained to think this way, it goes undiagnosed and the, and the dots aren't connected. Gosh. And the thing is with the genetically modified food, once it's out there, it's out there. And so it's, you, you, can't, you can't put the lid back onto the genie, it's, it's out. Uh, John, you are so sharp. You've done your homework. Dr. Ignacio Chapella from UC Berkeley here in California, he actually looked at, um, he found genetically modified corn in Mexico a thousand miles away, even though this stuff wasn't supposed to travel a thousand miles, but he found it a thousand miles away in his research, GM corn from the US. So you're absolutely right. 
that you cannot contain cornfields. There are birds, insects, this stuff, once out there, can, is, it's impossible to contain, very difficult. And so this is the situation we find ourselves in. Right. And I believe they've even made the, um, the seeds so they can't, or some of the seeds so they can't self-propagate. So they've got a guaranteed income. You've got to buy the seed from them year on year, not use the, um, the seeds germinated from their own crops. <laughs> it's, 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 it's devious and we sound like such conspiracists, but yes, the farmer needs to repurchase the seeds every year and with the chemicals that go with the seeds. Because the seeds, even according to a retired USDA um, biologist, are slow to germinate and you have to apply a whole bunch of stuff on, on them because they're not healthy. And this, this plant biologist from the USDA who's worked there for like 35 years, his name is Dr. Robert Kremer, he said these seeds are not healthy and you have to apply all sorts of stuff on that to get them to germinate. Well, there's, um, we've got a spoken gun. We've got <laughs> so many people sick. It's, it's almost like a crime, isn't it? How it can be allowed to continue it you know, without at least further studies or the fact that it was rushed. Um, I'm just wondering whether the future there is going to be, um, you know, that we are going to pass the 100 monkey mark and people are going to realise there is a problem, there's going to be studies and there's going to be results and the results aren't going to be pretty and heads will roll. But, I mean, the product, it's out there. It's, it's um, and part of this massive experiment and all our children, all of ourselves, we're all suffering as a result of this experiment. It's, it's absolutely true. And, and you know, as, as a clinician, when I'm faced with a sick child here in front of me, so what do I tell that mom and dad? And here's a mom up all night with a sick kid. You know, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, nothing I can do. Uh, well, we're all part of the same science experiment. So that is, that is not where my ethical and moral obligation lies, right? My obligation lies with that child and that family. And there are things okay. I know how to do. And what I know how to do is change our food source. And that's why I tell parents, you've got to change your food and, and do the best you can. Grow your own. Um, you can do, there's so many things we can do. But without that, there, there, I could give the best treatments, the best therapies, the best herbs. But if the food's not changed, the child, even if they have a temporary improvement, will relapse. And that's what I found. Okay. If, you, if the child's been on organic food for a while, do, is it basically a complete recovery or do they still have some sensitivities in their body? They can still have some, it's, a, it's very individual. Um, I have found the more the, the child has been subject to multiple courses of antibiotics, other illnesses, um, exposures, etc., cetera, um, it can often be harder to turn a kid around. But once a kid better and they're doing well and you've eliminated a lot of the issues and then they have some indiscretions they get into some pesticides or gmos they can tolerate it much better because their microbiome is more robust they're healthier their nutrient levels are higher if you haven't made those improvements the child will likely relapse so the other thing that people don't know about glyphosate is that it's a metal chelator and what that means is that it binds nutrients. And we have found this to be true in soil, where it binds up magnesium, calcium, zinc in the soil. Our guts and our human body is very analogous to soil. And so when what we suspect is happening is that glyphosate is binding up our children's nutrients, such as zinc, calcium, magnesium. When we check kids, they are low. They are low for these 
crucial nutrients that run zinc, for example, runs a couple of hundred reactions in children's brains. And without that, kids are not functioning well. I thought the story wasn't going to get any worse, but it just has taken a, it's taken another dive. Gosh, as well as as well as a poison, it also takes away the good good guys. So you know, I mean, we, we let them eat dirt. We need to be like healthy soil. That's how I like to yeah. explain yeah. You know, to parents what our children's microbiome, those organisms, need to look like. When you pick up healthy soil and it's black and it's lush and it smells great and it's rich. That's what our guts are supposed to be like, full of um, beneficial bacteria, full of nutrients, um, you know, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. So we, this is a practice of improving our internal milieu as well as the external environment. So I tell parents, improve internally the food, the water, etc., but also improve your external environment. Decrease the amount of toxic products you use. Take your shoes off at the door. Don't bring in that toxic dust at home. And um, especially personal care products. Be careful with your shampoos, toothpaste, etc. Because we have no research, zero, on the effect of various chemicals and pesticides and um, uh, electromagnetic frequencies and, 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 and. So our kids are basically chronically toxic. It's a toxic soup. No studies on that. John. Well, 50, 50 years from now, I'll probably find that the human population is rather spartan as a result of all, the, all these um, experiments which are, which are currently taking place. Because uh, uh, um, infertility, for example, has become prevalent. And that could well be a, a result of GM foods as well as other chemicals which, which we're surrounded with. Have you, have you looked into this at all? Well, we have, John, because um, I also am involved with the website. I'm the executive director of gmoscience.org, and we are a website committed to looking at genetically modified food, pesticides, and the interface with health based on science. No voodoo, none of that stuff, hardcore science. And one okay. of the articles we're writing that'll be out um, probably in two weeks is on infertility. So we've taken a hard look at this. And the last data I've seen is of, of the childbearing age in women, about 12% are having fertility issues. And there are some corners of the U.S. right now where there is an infertility clinic on every corner of some towns in the Midwest, our, one of our big growing areas. And it's, it's men too. Sperm counts are down as well. It's not just women. It's, it's both sexes. And so we have a massive infertility issue occurring literally now. And... Um, and when you look at a lot of these women, we did a, there was a study done out right here in the Midwest, in the U.S., and in Indiana, women, these women were 90% positive for glyphosate. So we know those pesticides are on board. We know about infertility. Um, and so this is something that we're addressing, and we're, we're, we're looking at it actively. We are involved, yes. Wow. The, uh, I assume that most countries in the world are using some gene genetically modified foods or sprays. Um, are there any countries which, um, which are worse than others? Yes, I think the U.S. is probably the worst. Um, we're, we're probably the worst, I think. Um, also, Argentina and uses a lot of GMOs. Um, Brazil is getting up there now. Um, uh, some countries are doing much better. Sri Lanka has banned uh, GMs, um, GMOs. Um, I think France does somewhat better. Um, Russia has banned imports. Um, 
There are some other countries that don't allow uh, gr growth. Um, I believe Hungary is looking into it. Um, so it's really country by country. So, and now, you know, at least in the European Union, they have much stricter requirements regarding glyphosate and the amount that is allowed in food and in water here in the U.S. In the U.S., every time the amount goes up, um, we increase the amount that um, is allowed because we have more and more glyphosate on board. So certain countries are better. Um, I think there are 60 co uh, countries now that are either um, either banning uh, um, GMOs or at least restricting their usage. And even in India, there's certain um, states of India which are banning uh, GMOs, um, and some states are growing it. So it's very variable. Uh, Canada also uses a lot of GMOs um, in Canada, our neighbors to the north. Uh, Mexico yes. is getting it pushed on them by the U.S. government um, because corn is very important to the Mexican culture, maize. Um, and so it's, it's really hard to know where to buy your produce where to get your food um so you really need like a phd and you know a global politics to understand where to go food shopping gosh and when you've got corn and oils and you know sugar beet sugars <laughs> it could be anything down the product line which has had sugar added which is basically everything on the uh supermarket shelf now you're getting a little dose of gm without even knowing it because they don't specify the source of the sugar they, they, they give them the ingredients, it contains sugar. How is one to know whether it contains, you know, genetically modified sugar or well, not? what you have to do, John, is avoid sugar from sugar beets and buy sugar from sugar cane. That's how you do it. Not that we should be eating much sugar, but, you know, when it says sugar, hopefully they identify the source. But yes. as you well know, we were defeated with genetic GM labeling here in the U.S., so we have no way of knowing what we're eating or tracking disease. Because if a food is not labeled and there is a health issue, we have, we can't track it to its source. You know, like HIV, when that first came out in the 1980s, it was identified and tracked. But we cannot do the same because we don't have labeling. Gosh, you you mentioned earlier on as recently as 2015. They did studies and found genetically modified foods, sorry, glyphosate, to um, uh, be carcinogenic to humans. Yes, correct. So, uh, so um, well, we there is only actually two human studies on glyphosate and carcinogenicity, and I believe it was a kidney embryonal cell. There's only two. We only most of the data was was from laboratory research animals on the carcinogenicity of glyphosate. There's only, I believe, two cells that looked at uh, human kidney embryonal cells and carcinogenicity, and maybe one other. But most of it comes from animal research. Gosh. So there's been two researchers. So there have been two um, studies, and yet it's worldwide and worldwide use. It's quite a, quite a dangerous experiment, don't you think? <laughs> well, the rates of cancer are exploding um, in adult children. And what I find extremely interesting, and here's a little sidebar, is that dogs, for example, the rate of cancer in dogs 50 years ago was one in 100 dogs would develop cancer. It's a relatively common issue for dogs. The rate of cancer now in dogs in America is 1 to 1.6. And the most common dog, dog tumor are lymphomas, blood tumors. Now we know that the big, the, 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 lymph, 
what the tumor that's been associated with Roundup, for example, is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And you know I'm asking the question, is this relationship between dog lymphoma and Roundup? Because dogs are so close to the ground, they're drinking a lot of groundwater, and is this what's causing the epidemic of dog cancer? Um, so I've also, you should also know that the um, loss of livestock in America is significant. There's massive livestock loss. And I have, when I do talks and I have pictures of slides from livestock that I got from a vet, Dr. Dumpmeyer, Ted Dumpmeyer, I have to give him credit. And I have pictures of cattle's livers sacrifice from the cattle uh, died at birth that were fed uh, glyphosate-based um, uh, food. The livers look awful, my gosh, enlarged, mottled, friable livers. When the vet changed their feed to non-GMO glyphosate-containing feed, the liver problem went away. And it's the, there's the pictures right there in front of you. It's hard to make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. It's almost unbelievable that if there's proof or evidence or even any suggestion that there's a danger to human lives and human health, health um, for this to continue. It just seems rather unbelievable that um, the government agencies, the FDA, will allow this to happen without any sort of, um, you know, any sort of, um, you know, without looking into it further and, and just, you know, and uh, you know, for, the, for the sake of, a, of millions and millions of people's lives, gosh, they, they should have, a, uh, have some sort of commission where, um, well, well, you know, well, it's, it's beyond words. Around. It's hard to wrap around. I've asked myself the same thing. You know, um, you know, I always worry about being called a conspiracist, but can, you know, it's hard to imagine that we would have let something happen to billions of people. It's almost without conscience for for profit. It's hard to wrap around that idea, and. And even I've had this very issue when there's a, a disease in, in children where parents purposely hurt children. It's called Munchausen's by proxy. And it's very hard to diagnose because we as pediatricians, pediatricians cannot wrap around the idea that somebody would purposely harm innocent beings. So that's why it's been so hard to wrap around this idea that we could have produced something that's so intentionally harmful for the sake of profit and being able to patent seeds. But there's something, you know, I don't, I'm a health provider and I, but I have read Carrie Gillum's book, Whitewashed. I think I have it there behind me that looked in, into the collusion and the conspiracy and the deception that has occurred. And we have, I think UCSF has just acquired the Monsanto papers, the millions of pages. Well, I don't know how many, a lot of pages of emails and, um, ghostwriting that went on and and deceptive practice between the EPA and, and agribusiness. I mean, we have names. We know who these people were. We know who took money. We know of this, these relationships. So it exists. The information is there. So, you know, but what I try to do is take care of children and not go down that rabbit hole. But I'm aware, once you open your eyes to the truth, you can't go back to sleep, John. So your book, uh, we'll just quickly talk about your book before we uh, finish. Um, do you provide solutions in your book? Re give recommendations on 
do. We do some. I don't do so many treatment protocols. That may have to be book number two. I hope Dr. Adams is open to the idea. But um, we have resources at the end of the book, you know, what's making our children sick. We have a bunch of resources. And, you know, if people don't understand that they need to, like, avoid eating this food and eat organic, then I, I don't know. I don't think we've done our job. So we really try to drill down that message. In terms of specific treatments, I haven't gone into that. Like, you know, which homeopathics I use, which herbal remedies I use. I, I gave you a little bit of a um, talk before about what herbs I like to use and what spices, but I didn't go into it. I think there will have to be a follow-up book. And um, there are, if people Google this online, they can find stuff. I do have products I use. I can go into and tell people how to reverse the glyphosate damage. It is doable. You can do it. But I think people need to work with somebody, you know, like an integrative practitioner. If they have serious health issues, it's kind of hard to manage this on your own. But I have families who reported feeling better within three days just by going organic. So, you know, um, I say we start there. We, you drink filtered water when we can. You decrease the environmental toxic load so the child has a lower, and, and families, lower allostatic load of total toxicants. And then I think I'll be writing that follow-up book. I'm going to call it Roundup Ready Children. <laughs> nice title. Gosh. Um, are, would you be allowed to use a product name rather than the chemical name? No, I don't, I'm being partially tongue-in-cheek here. I don't think I can use that name. Um, I think it's been used. But, um, so, but I think I need to maybe start a blog or something uh, online for parents. And I, you know, they can get some, a lot of this information online or through integrative practitioners, whether they're chiropractors or traditional Chinese medicine, ac acupuncturists, et cetera. But um, I think where people can start, here. You eat organic, get a basic water filter, um, eat fermented food or take probiotics, you can start there. And if that's not enough, um, and then take a multivitamin, a quality multivitamin, and include more greens um, in your diet. That's a place to start. Can eating modified food in any way change your own DNA? That is a good question. And the way it can do that is, and I've been reading about this, trying to see how this happens. I think what the genetically modified food can do is alter your microbiome. And microbiome and your cells can switch information. This is what we're starting to understand, that there can be a DNA exchange between your symbiotic inhabitants of your gut and your own cells. Now, your genetic sequence is your genetic sequence. However, what we can modify are the epigenes. And these are various molecules that sit on top of your genetics and they are modifiable through, for example, various processes, one's called methylation, um, et cetera. And so they are, uh, and, these, and genes can be turned off and on depending on these epigenetic changes that can be happening from GM food and or changes in your microbiome. So that, so yes, the answer is yes. It's more oh, complicated. That's the, that's the quickie answer, but I do believe it can happen, yes. And so if it does happen, will it be passed on through generations because it's a part of your own DNA? You know, your own DNA gets passed down? So indeed, that is how it's happening because when babies are born vaginally, they acquire their mother's microbiome. And they also acquire 
whatever mom was expo exposed to, those epigenetic changes are passed on to the offspring. So oftentimes people think, well, ADHD runs in my family and mm. it's genetic. You'll hear that quite a bit. Well, it may not be genetic. It may be epigenetic because genetic changes are very hard to change. But mom and dad's exposures can have changed their epigenes, which then get passed on to the offspring. And those epigenetic changes are what um, the baby's born with. You could even have two twins, uh, two babies, twins, where one receives epigenetic changes and one doesn't. So one baby's healthy and one isn't. It's very interesting. Not, both babies don't receive all of mom's load and exposure. If mom is a high toxic load, only one infant might receive it. But mom does offload her toxins and toxicants to the baby. Heavy metals and other exposures, yes, she will offload those to the baby. Here in the U.S., one-third of babies are born via cesarean section, so they don't acquire the normal microbiome which you, from mom, the germs, the, the beneficial bacteria, because those bacteria talk to the baby's thymus, uh, their innate immunity, to set up the beginning of the baby's immune system. And babies born by cesarean, one of mine was, acquire the microbiome of their skin, the surgeon, and the operating suite. Now, through breastfeeding and nursing, that baby's microbiome will be altered. But if that baby is fed formula, they are at a significant um, uh, impairment immunologically. Gosh. Have I depressed everybody by now? I, I feel like it's like people are going to be running away from this, this uh, feed. Um, yes, that, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's any positive spin you can put on things. Yes. I, I, I know I sound like Dr. Doom and Gloom here, John, but things change. Remember, the body has an innate ability to heal itself. And if you mm. give it the right tools, it will heal itself. So if you change your child's diet, give them organic food, increase the nutrients by fresh fruits and vegetables, and as clean as water as you can, perhaps with a water filter in some areas, that child, you will give a child the, the tools it needs to heal itself. And children do heal. And adults can, right. yes, there, there is a positive. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, everyone, we're talking with Michelle Perot. Um, expert on child health and um, genetically modified foods and glyphosate and other sprays and what to do about it. She's released a book. Please read it. Uh, what's um, making our children sick? Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for being on, to, on our show. Uh, what you've, it's, it's been a very depressing subject, to be sure, um, but, we, but there is an answer, and the answer is to avoid the poisons that are out there. Yes. Um, gosh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to our show, Michelle. And no, um, thank you for having me. And I hope uh, you know we've educated our listeners a little bit to what they can do for themselves and their families. Let's hope there's a change in the future, in the near future. I hope that um, these studies are released that show the the um, the damage that this modern food is causing. And let's hope it's not too late to change. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>